Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. We are so glad that you're here this morning, and today we are continuing in our teaching series that we've been in since Easter Sunday that we're calling Other Hard Questions, and we've been doing our best to answer and address many of the questions that people have about the Christian faith, and we've had both kind of two two ways that the questions came about us. Of course, many of the questions about the Christian faith are well known, and we've talked about a lot of those, and many of the other questions have been received individually from our congregation. In fact, if you were here last week, we did something totally different. We had a panel of four teachers, and we went through seven or eight, depending on which service you went to, seven or eight of those questions that especially came from our congregation. So if you weren't here last week, that would be a great one to check out on the podcast or on our website. And today we're going to jump into one of the, I think in some ways, one of the hardest Questions And that question is about the Bible and specifically the violence in the Old Testament. So there's kind of a little cluster of questions surrounding the violence of the Old Testament. First of all, what is with God in the Old Testament? Is he violent or is God seeking revenge or vengeance? Or with that, you know, it talks about the Bible as a whole. You know, is the Old Testament God a God of justice and violence and the New Testament the God of love? And if so, do those two relate to each other? And this is a difficult question. I want to remind you of a quote that we read together on Mother's Day, that one of the leading you know, opponents of the Christian faith, Richard Dawkins, says this about God, that God is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That whole accusation is centered on this specific topic. Now, on Mother's Day, we talked about the misogyny, but today we're going to stop. We're going to get back a lot further to talk about the violence in the Bible as a whole. And we're going to talk about it in several ways. The culture which surrounded the Bible, also whether or not it was right for God to do what he did in the Old Testament. And further, I think there's even more going on theologically that I want to dive into. So it's kind of heavy today. I I usually like to keep it light and tell jokes and let you out early. But today, I might let you out early still, but it's more heavy. It's just more weighty. It is. This message is almost rated PG-13, but I'm trying to hold it back just a little because I think that this is a message that we all can hear. So let's talk about the violence of the Old Testament. First of all, is that a fair characterization of God's word? Is there a lot of violence in the Old Testament? Yes. Yes, there is. We're not going to explain it away at all. We're not going to say that it didn't happen. And there are so many different 
you know, stories and accounts that I can remind you of about how difficult the violence of the Old Testament is to understand. You know, you think of the flood. This is Genesis 6 to 9, very early in the Bible. We have the flood where God said, you know, the height of mankind has reached such terrible sin that I'm going to send water, I'm going to flood the earth, and every single person is going to die except for eight people. That's early in the Bible. That's a lot of violence. That's a lot of death. Now, for some reason, we love to put the animals going two by two and the ark up on the wall in church nurseries. I never quite understood that one. I think, I think the kids might have been focusing on the wrong part of the story. That's a very difficult statement, right? The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by God because of their wickedness, and only three people who lived there survived. We're going to come back to that. There are other things that just don't seem fair. In fact, one time they were moving the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the same one that Indiana Jones found, right? They were moving the Ark. It teetered on the cart, and a man named Uzzah said, I don't want the Ark to fall, and he touched it, and he died on the spot. God killed him for touching the Ark. Like, well, that doesn't seem fair. But he's supposed to let the Ark fall on the ground? But it's in there. Or think of the Passover, right? Passover is universally loved by Jews and Christians alike as a sign of when God took care of his people. One of the most beloved examples of God's faithfulness. But it's actually a story of terrible violence. It says that at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Thousands of people died on this one night. And we, wow, look at what God did for his people. So this is not an easy question. But we're going to focus ourselves a little bit because the main indictment about the Old Testament violence centers around one important part of the Old Testament. And that is when God told Israel, I want you to take the land where the Canaanites live. In fact, we call it the promised land. But it was actually someone else's land that God said, go and take it from them. We're going to dig deep in that story. But first, we're going to back up just a little. We're going to talk about the culture of the Old Testament. And I talk about this a lot because it's incredibly important. If we don't understand the culture in which the Bible was written and in which both its writers and its audience existed, it's very difficult for us to understand what's actually being said. We have to always do our best to step across that divide. Now, I'm not saying the Bible is opaque and it's not accessible because it's very accessible, but we just have to use that lens. It's, it's just good listening, right, to understand where your, your, your speaker is coming from, where your content is coming from. And the world of Moses and Joshua and Gideon and David, it was full of unspeakable violence perpetrated by massive, well-armed professional armies. The kings of Egypt, Asia Minor, Mesopotamia, all this area, they were proud of their brutality and their savagery. If you read the inscriptions that have been found, the kings boast of doing terrible things like running through their enemies' bodies, ripping out their guts, galloping their horses and chariots through fields of dead bodies. They talk about there was so much blood that they splashed through it like it was a river, and they would peel the skin off of the, their defeated enemies in front of their children, and they did other, even more disgusting things that I'm not going to say. 
These nations were proud of their superior firepower and weapons. You know, the Egyptian pharaoh, the images they saved of him, show him holding his enemies by the hair and crushing them with a battle axe. Or we see Pharaoh thundering along in chariots with arrows, with, you know, crying, fleeing foes. And what's interesting is in those days, they didn't view this as senseless violence and brutality. It was actually viewed culturally throughout the area that if you had that type of overwhelming, bloody, you know, morbid, disgusting victory, it was a sign that the gods, quote-unquote, the gods' favor was on you, okay? And now you can start to see this, how this informs the Old Testament text. I'll give you an example. You might remember, you know, King David, the greatest king of Israel, right? You know, what was the first thing that he did to become famous? Killed Goliath, right? So, I don't know if you remember this account. There was a guy there. He looked kind of like Joe, who's right here. This just huge, big guy. And all of Israel was scared of him, okay? And he was like between 9 and 10 feet tall. And then little David came out, killed him with a slingshot. Everyone was amazed. It led to overwhelming victory. So immediately after that one battle, a song started to be sung in Israel. And that song was this. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet the king, the current king, Saul, with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. This was their beautiful song of victory. How great are our leaders? Our king has slain thousands of people. And our hero David has killed tens of thousands of people. Because they viewed that as God's blessing upon them. And they didn't view it as some sort of barbaric, out-of-touch culture. Our world is quite a bit different from this today. We would never laud the praise of any ruler for killing tens of thousands of people. They would be a war criminal, right? But not just that. We've really changed so much in life for what we view as violent and, you know, kind of out of control. In fact, there was a, a news story that went viral this week. It was an account uh, of a brawl that broke out. It was a very a fight scary brawl. At a little league you game, might have heard about not this. Not because of the kids, but because of the parents. Yeah, you have to see this video just released by Lakewood Police. You'll see a group of adults brawling in the middle of brawling. a Lakewood baseball field where seven-year-olds were playing. Number seven, Sean Toll, getting answers for us tonight. Sean, the fight started because of a call made by the umpire. You might need to look away. Yeah, Ann and Jessica, Lakewood Police tells us the call was made by a 13-year-old umpire, which started this whole thing. Now, check out the video and take a look at everything that happened. What is happening? What is happening? This cannot happen. This cannot happen. This cannot happen. Now, the game happened over the weekend here at Westgate Elementary School. The players, seven years old. According to police, the fight broke out because of a call the young umpire made. You can see parents going after one another. The person the police really want to find is the man you see in the white T-shirt and teal shorts. Officers say he sucker punched several people, one person receiving serious injuries because of his action. Now, back out here live at Westgate so Elementary School.
I'm not saying this is a good thing. Don't hear me wrong. Okay? This is terrible. The seven-year-olds are playing baseball. The 13-year-old ump. I have a son who's a 13-year-old ump, so I'm like, wait a minute. He made a bad call, which is likely. And a brawl broke out. But what are we calling a brawl? It was six out-of-shape guys in flip-flops pushing each other. Okay? In fact, that, you know, the suspect was, and if you read to the, to the very, very end, they say at the end, no one was arrested, but several people were cited. Now, I, I play and coach Sanction Little League. I got a letter from the national director with this video saying, first of all, this wasn't Sanction Little League. Second of all, we denounced this violence as being inappropriate. Me and my league, we co-authored a letter that we sent to all of our parents saying we would never accept this kind of behavior. And listen, it's not good. Don't get me wrong. But this brawl of pushing and shoving in flip-flops is national news, Okay. So I'm not saying whose culture is better or whose culture is worse, but you have to admit they are very, very different. Right? So we bring that into this conversation. No one in this video died. No one had broken bones. I didn't see any blood. Even when they went into slow-mo, it looked like the punch hardly landed. I mean, my kids do worse to this to each other when they think I'm not looking. Like, you know, it's just this is not our perspective today. And just to throw it out there, Jesus had plenty of time, and he talked about the Old Testament a lot. So did a lot of the other writers of the New Testament. They never denounced the Old Testament violence either as being shameful or somehow, you know, inappropriate. So it's just, it's such a different culture that we have to always pause a little bit before we start to indict another culture to say, how you did it is wrong, how we do it is right. Because it's, it's, it's a long distance to travel. All right, let's focus up a little bit. Now, talking about the promised land, beyond this violent culture in general, the leading criticism against God in the Old Testament is the command by God for Israel to displace the Canaanites from their land and to take it over. Here is the command, verbatim. In the cities of the nation, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites... Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And you cannot explain this away because it's repeated 37 other times. That God tells them this command, you have to kill everyone in the land. That's hard to hear. So, who were these assembled group of people? The largest people group within them was the Canaanites. They're one of the people groups just mentioned. So we largely talk about them. The Canaanites are the descendants of a man named Ham. He was one of Noah's sons. When Noah and his sons were the only people on the earth, there was an incident that happened. I want to say this carefully. Noah was unconscious. He was drunk. and He was unconscious. And his son Ham came into where he was, and something happened between the two of them. And the text is not clear. The text is talking around something that it never makes clear. But what we do know is something happened. Noah was naked and unconscious. We know that. His youngest son came into his room. Whatever happened there, the other two sons were ashamed that it had happened, and Noah was angry and embarrassed at what his son had done to him while he was passed out naked. And God forever cursed Ham and his people because of what happened in that place on that day. That is everything that we know. 
you can draw your own conclusions that something probably sexual in nature happened that was heinous and terrible. And those people were forever cursed by God. Where did those people go to live? They are the people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that these cities were famous for their wickedness, for the awful things that would happen there. Ancient accounts tell us things like strangers and travelers would come to Sodom and Gomorrah where they would be robbed, stripped, and held captive in the city. They would wander the streets, slowly starving. Middle Eastern hospitality required you to offer a bed to anyone who needed it, but in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would offer you a bed, and when you would go to that bed, it was a bed of torture. If you were short, it stretched you. If you were tall, they cut your legs off. There's another account that if you came to Sodom and Gomorrah, they would greet you at the gate. They would say, we have gold for you, and they would put your name on it. Here is your gold. But what they wouldn't tell you is no one in the town was going to sell you anything. And you were going to wander from place to place, merchant to merchant, and say, can I buy water? And they would say no. Can I buy food? And they would say no. And they would watch you starve to death and be dying of dehydration until you died. And then they would take your gold back from your body. Genesis 19 tells a terrible account of when two men came to Sodom. They were actually angels in the appearance of men. And the residents of Sodom demanded that they be made available for their sexual pleasure. Lot, who was hosting the men, refused and to the point that he made available his own family instead. A terrible, terrible place. Proud of their evil. And yet, if you read Genesis 18, there's an incredible conversation that happens between Abraham and God. Because God says, Abraham, I'm killing all these people. And Abraham says, are you sure you should kill all these people? What if there are righteous ones who remain? And they have this kind of back and forth. And he says, what if there's 100 who remain? God says, well, if there were 100 people, I would spare them. What if there were 50 people who remain? They kind of have this back and forth. Till eventually Moses asked him, I mean, Abraham asked him, but isn't the God of heaven going to do what is right? Literally the same question we are asking. Are you going to do what is right for these people? Later, these people groups, most of them were destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah. Many lived on, especially those who lived outside the city. They migrated to Canaan where their behavior did not get any better. Some of their religious shrines and habits are appalling. In one of their high places, researchers found stone pillars and jars with the remains of unwanted babies. When a new house was built, a child would be sacrificed and left inside the wall because they said that was good luck for the rest of the family. Firstborn children were often sacrificed to their pagan god of Molech. They built an altar that had metal hands. They would put the infant in, the altar would be in the fire, so it would be blazing hot. They would put the infant in the hands where the infant would be burned, would roll down the arms into the fire. That was the sacrifice. And the, the mother was not allowed to show grief or the sacrifice was invalid. In fact, she was expected to dance and to sing. The sexual habits of these people, their cultic prostitution was disgusting. Many people were forced into prostitution and abused to death, and it was part of their religion. And it wasn't simply that they weren't perfect. You know, God didn't tell Israel, I want you to kill Egypt. He didn't say, I want you to kill Assyria. It was only this one people group. So if you read Leviticus, between 18 and 20, it makes it very clear that these people had been so evil 
that the land was defiled and they needed to be vomited out. Yet God still showed them incredible patience. Tells Abraham in Genesis 15, in the fourth generation your descendants will come back here for the sin of this people group, Amorites, Canaanites, Jebusites, all of them, has not yet reached its full potential. And if you read the text, you see that they were there for 400 years while Israel was in Egypt. You remember that. Then they were there another 40 years while Israel was wandering in the desert. All this time, the Canaanites had access to truth. They knew what is right. In fact, when Israel did first start to take the land, they spoke to Rahab, who's a famous Canaanite. What was her profession? Prostitute. See, this makes sense in the culture, right? What did she say? She said, we're all scared. We, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that the great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. They knew who God was. They knew that judgment was coming. They knew it was coming through his people. And you can go deeper into this. You'll see so many other times, you know, that the conquest really focused more on military cities and not population centers and all that. But I don't want to explain it away because I think we should go right after what really happened. And that is this. God used Israel to judge a people group that he decided deserved to be judged. In those days, Israel's governmental structure was this. They followed God personally and specifically. They didn't have a president. They didn't have a king. They didn't have a prime minister. They didn't have any other law but God's law. Again, this is very different for us. As Christians, at the very least, you could say that we follow two law codes, right? First, we have God's code, and then we have the code of our country. And of course, we don't just have the code of our country, because we have the code of our country, then we have the code of our state, then we have the code of our county, all the way down to the code of your village that writes you a ticket for leaving your car on the street, right? We have all these layers of laws. They didn't have that. They just had God's law. Here's why that matters. We do not argue the rights of governments to punish their citizens. That is universally accepted as being appropriate. So when you commit a crime, you will be judged in a court. Now, different countries have different qualities of criminal justice. In our country, we do our best to keep it fair. You're going to be judged by first a professional judge who oversees your trial. Then if it's the right kind of crime, you'll have you know, a jury of your peers to ask if you're you know, innocent or guilty. And that's the instrument by which we punish our people. That's why you're not allowed to punch the ump, right? We have a, we have a system for that. So in the same way that we allow our government to punish our people, including imprisonment, fines, and even death, we allow our government to punish our own people. God is allowed to punish his own people using others of his people. It is exactly the same type of justice. God was the immediate king of Israel. All politics and law were united, and so God used his people as agents of justice because it is within God's sovereign right to judge all who are evil. I don't want to be morbid, but God takes all life. Whenever 
we die, we are taken by him. And so if he decides it's today, that's up to him. If he decides it's in a group, that's up to him. It's hard for us to hear because we love to call the shots. But he is God and we are not. And when God was explaining this to his people, he also wanted to make one other thing clear. God was using Israel to judge Canaan. But he didn't want them to think, you know what, Israel, that's because you're so great and they're so terrible. This is how he said it. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then, that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. It makes it very clear. It's not a value statement. You're way up here, you're way down here. He's saying, no, no, no. This is my plan for this to happen and for you to do it. And so we can build a case, I think, that's fairly clear that the violence of the Old Testament reflects both being part of a very violent culture, comparatively speaking to where we are today, and that God was using his sovereign right as divine judge to judge those who deserved it. I still think we can go deeper, though, because I think something else is going on here. Because the scripture is one continuous account of God building his kingdom. And this is where it starts to matter that the Testaments have a very different feel to them, because I'm not denying that that's true. The Old Testament clearly shows the bleakness of the world. Without a Savior, there is violence, death, sin, and pain on a nearly unimaginable scale. But this is preparing the world for what is to come. That there is a Savior who is going to make all of this right. And in fact... When Jesus, came, <coughs> when Jesus came, he was ready to start his ministry. And Luke, the way that he announced himself, he went into the synagogue and did the daily reading, probably on the Sabbath, right? He went there where he'd been brought up. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. What are the chances, okay? Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus takes the law, Isaiah, and he says, It is now the day of freedom, of healing, of liberty, and of God's favor. And he announces a new day in that moment that begins with his ministry. And in fact, I don't want to push this too far, but some scholars love to point out that if you go back to Isaiah, where these words are also copied, of course, 
the next verse is about God's vengeance and justice. And Jesus stops and he just focuses on the freedom and the grace that is to come in this period, beginning in his ministry. And I find that fascinating because as we talk about how God is revealing himself from beginning to end in the scripture, we see that in Jesus we have the full display, the full representation of who God is. Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Listen, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And the words that are being used here, especially when it says the radiance of God's glory, those words there are kind of like Jesus is the shininess of the shiniest part. He's the highlight of the most important part. He's the exact representation, the full display of who God is. I love this translation of verse 1. After God spoke long ago in various portions, in various ways, See, God has been steadily revealing himself more and more and more until the person of Christ when he's fully displayed. So I do believe that right now we're in a season of more grace, of more love, and of more freedom as Jesus announced it. And so that is why in kind of the salvation history of God's people, we see more judgment and pain and death and violence early. And now, in this time period that we share, we see the love and the grace that comes through the person of Christ. But, if you say, the Old Testament is the testament of violence and judgment, and the New Testament is the testament of love and grace, you did not finish the New Testament. Because the New Testament finishes with another Old Testament that's much more harsh and much more difficult than what we see in the Old Testament. And Revelation kind of also, you know, remember this is like a kind of a, a tale being unfolded. Revelation 5, partway into that book, is where it talks about Jesus being both the lion and the lamb. Right? Aslan the lion who roars in ferocious judgment, fighting for his people and against his people and against his enemies. And also Jesus as the lamb of grace and love who was given for us. But then as you go deeper into Revelation, you get to chapter 19, where the revealed images of God and his justice and his power. He is the glorious, majestic, victorious warrior king who rides out of heaven on a white horse. And this king rides to make war. Holy, righteous war where he assaults with victory the kingdom of sin and darkness. His eyes flash with fire. His head bears all crowns. His clothes are dripping blood. Heaven's armies follow him. A sword comes out of his mouth and he rules the nations with a rod of iron. The bride of Christ, that's us, sees this victorious king and follows him. And so, as you consider the difficulty of violence of the Old Testament, 
we can rest with confidence to say, yes, we know that God will do what is right. God has never wronged anyone, not even in their death. And it also has a very practical application. And I, listen, a lot of, a lot of pastors for generations have tried to scare people into believing Jesus. I don't want to do that. But to talk about this means you have to take the claims that Jesus makes in the Bible very seriously. You have to honestly consider your place before this Savior, Warrior, King. Because his day of judgment is coming. His time of vengeance for those who have been wronged is coming. And we have to decide on which side of that warrior king we want to be. And it's not a great idea to say, well, I don't really buy all this. I'm just going to wait and see. Because this is a decision and a conviction that we need to come to as his people. And so I'm going to invite the band to come back up if they would. And we're going to go through the table of communion. And Trevor's going to lead us through this. And this is a very holy and sacred moment because this is when we remember that Jesus saw that love and grace through a day of the most terrible violence that you could experience. That he was personally beaten. He was personally stoned. He bled. And he was given in an act of execution and violence for us so that we could experience his grace and his love. So why don't we pray as we prepare our hearts. God, it's, it's not easy to talk about how difficult the world is. But we have such confidence in who you are. You've showed us your character. You've showed us your commitment to do what is right. <coughs> and God, as, as we're here in your presence, convict us even now of how we can be showing that grace and that justice to all who surround us. Press us forward in this, I pray. In Jesus' name.